They mentioned like the Fibonacci sequence or the golden ratio. Those principles of uh, biological design actually underpin the principles of design of of like when you're doing graphic arts um, and when you're uh, putting together even, even a painting, the, the, the golden ratio and the Fibonacci spiral are all over Renaissance art because the way that you compose a painting or a picture of any sort so that we perceive it as beautiful or balanced or whatever the, the, the term you use really relates back to human evolution in that the lowest frequency, the lowest risk way for us to understand and absorb information about the environment is the thing that we're going to perceive as the most beautiful. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world with your hosts, David Yeh and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we created a free professional development guide for MSCs, which you can find in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Special thanks to Matt Match for sponsoring this episode. Our sponsor today is Johnson Matthew, a global leader in sustainable technology. Johnson Matthew's vision is for a world that's cleaner and healthier today and for future generations. Johnson Matthews scientists use their deep understanding of materials, surface science, chemistry, and chemical engineering to design catalysts, advanced materials, and processes, tackling the world's biggest challenges, such as reaching net zero, enabling cleaner air, improving health, and using our planet's natural resources more efficiently. For over 20 years, they have been in the manufacturing and shape setting of nitinol tubes, sheets, and components for the medical device industry, so Johnson Matthew is an ideal sponsor for today's podcast. Johnson Matthew, inspiring science, enhancing life. Hi everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Jane Cook, an inter and transdisciplinary innovator and educator in material science and engineering and art. She's had extensive experiences researching and developing industrial processes for glasses, semiconductors, metals, and ceramics, while also fulfilling her passion for art through her time as a chief scientist in the Corning Museum of Glass, as a museum director at Penn State, and by making sculptures and other forms of art in her personal time. We are super excited to uncover the vast overlap between material science and art in this episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Jane. My pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. This will be fun. Yeah, just uh, kind of starting as going. When we were younger, there's a perceived binary of science and art. Either you do science, like biology and chemistry, or you do art. But in reality, there's a deep intersection between the two of these. So can you talk about that intersection in more detail and specifically how we can apply it to material science? Yeah, it's uh, the idea of this separation of science from art is something that really got started in the 19th century as a really as, as a way of making more, more more efficiently making good scientists and good engineers. You, you know that you know in in your a four year curriculum or five year curriculum as an undergrad, you have to really just kind of knuckle down and and become the beginnings of the expert that you think industry wants you to be. But at the same time, there's aspects to that to the value that scientists and engineers can bring. To the world that has to do with their creativity and their free thinking ability and their their ability to to fail passionately and learn from it and move forward, and uh, that's kind of been taken out of the curriculum uh, for the most part. 
what art and science have in common is at that is at that deep core that when you're being inventive, when you're really not just kind of going through the scientific method hypothesis on through, you actually have to generate the hypothesis from somewhere. And where that usually comes from is from playing and from messing around and giving yourself a chance to, to push at the borders of things. And uh, artists and scientists do that in equal measure as they're coming up with their ideas and as they're exploring what it is they're going to make. The real difference only comes in the focus. The scientist or the engineer has particular specs or a particular research plan, and the artist is responding to their own inner need to uh, express something about how they feel about the world or themselves. So they become their own uh, their own customer in some, in, to some extent. Wow. Yeah, I remember thinking about this and I remember like there were conversations about using like different parts of your brain for like science versus art, like creativity versus logic. But I, I always thought, you know, why not practice developing like both sides or and like you could unlock so much more with with that. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, the, the, that that integration, right brain, left brain. If you look like historically, somebody like Leonardo da Vinci, who was a masterful artist, but also a brilliant futurist and engineer because of the ability to be a, a Renaissance person. We, we need to reclaim that. We need to find ways to, to raise the, that, that interest in the creative for the creative sake, but also for the sake of you know, mental health is an important part of it. And how, how to do that in terms of while still graduating in four years. <laughs> I, I don't know what the answer to that is in terms of programming, but I certainly always uh, encourage young scientists, young engineers, even uh, STEM K-12, you know, when you're coming up through, through uh, high school, to you know, be in musical theater, get into band, take a shop class, do something, have hobbies outside of your, your math science core classes, just to be a good human. Ultimately, that being informed, whether whether you're a quote unquote good artist or not, yeah. So it's when something we think about that kind of first defining a little bit. Uh, when I think of a scientist and an engineer, I, they're they're two different things. Although give yourself that kind of outlet in some way. Absolutely, yeah. And so I know you mentioned in our previous discussion the the idea that artists are materials engineers, and we see all around us whether it's sculptures or paintings or anything. I mean, they're made of materials, sometimes different materials, but they just practice in a different way. Artists versus traditional, I guess, materials engineers and engineering firms. So I guess, what exactly did you mean by that? And can you discuss the similarities between the two roles? They often they overlap in an individual, especially in the material sciences and engineering. I, I think of science as sort of the pursuit of decimal places. It's the pursuit of precision, <laughs> understanding, and and where where the goal isn't necessarily to get an answer, it's to find the next question. That's what scientists and science is about. Engineering is no kidding about finding an answer and also finding out how many decimal places you actually need to solve the problem. I like to use the example of pi. You know, we, you might memorize it to be nerdy, uh, uh, 3.14159263857, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but rarely do you actually ever need to know that more than three, <laughs> 3.14 maybe if in the material sciences and even a lot of mechanical stuff that you don't really need to know very many digits. But because precision is expensive when you're an engineer and you're actually designing something. Uh, the difference between uh, you know a, a machine shop give, delivering you a piece of of metal for a for a machine that's 
tolerance of ten thousandths of an inch versus you know a few hundred thousandths of an inch, that could make the difference of thousands and thousands or even millions of dollars on a machine. So you have to be very careful about taking keeping track of how many decimal places you have. So the the focus of that engineering is it is understanding your constraints, understanding the opportunity, and then looking at what the situation is and picking what are the right materials, the right processes, the, the right, right way to bring these things together. Uh, so that it's mechanically robust or optically active or whatever whatever your your application is. For an artist, again, sort of to, in defense of my my hypothesis, artists really do the same sort of thing, except mostly their their specifications that they're responding to, as I mentioned before, sort of these internal specifications. Artists have this dilemma that sort of matches the precision of if if. When you're making a painting, if you one brush stroke too many and the painting is ruined, there is an answer. There is a final point. And it's the artist's duty, burden, opportunity to both be in charge of when it's done, but also having to be in charge of when it's done. And all the principles that we learn in materials science and engineering about uh, specifying a material for all the different attributes for strength and and optics and you know formability, malleability, durability in various environments, all those things have to be considered as you're in pursuit of some aesthetic specification as opposed to a purely technical manufacturing specification. So again, it's just sort of turning that the art science thing on its head and really saying, you know here are these people who, are using those principles, making those same sorts of decisions with consequences that are, you know, the consequences of the heart, the consequences of the mind and the expression of, of the human condition. That, that's, that's as much of a burden in its own way as making sure the bridge doesn't fall down. If we look at like an example, it could be like bio-inspired design. So that could potentially be an argument for both an artistic and a engineering combining to take a new step forward. And when we look at nature, we look at things like the Fibonacci sequence, where we see these very ordered mathematical scientific things occur in nature that we can then replicate in both art to look more realistic, but also in design. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's like the purest form of the artists and material engineers practicing in different ways? Or do you think we can go even farther beyond that point where we can combine the artistic vision and the engineering pursuit for? Definity to a farther point. It's a great question. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, like, off the top of my head, say, "Yeah, that's that's the that's that's number one." But I can say that artists know about this. Sometimes they feel it in their bones, and sometimes, like me, they're sort of crossover disciplinary who are so turned on by the beauty of science uh, that that then becomes part of the foundation of what they express. They mentioned like the Fibonacci sequence or the golden ratio. Those principles of uh, biological design actually underpin the principles of design of, of like when you're doing graphic arts um, and when you're uh, putting together even, even a painting, the, the, the golden ratio and the Fibonacci spiral are all over Renaissance art. And on I, I challenge you, you, you actually can find a Fibonacci spiral on a box of a breakfast cereal because the way that you compose a painting or a picture of any sort so that the human perception of it is we perceive it as beautiful or balanced or whatever the, the, the term you use really relates back to human evolution in that the lowest frequency, the lowest risk way for us to understand and absorb information about the environment is the thing that we're going to perceive as the most beautiful. 
orderliness is low risk. And, and so if we, we, when we create design work, again, whether it's the Mona Lisa or a box of, of Cracker Jack, you will spend less energy on intaking the data if the data is presented in a way that humans have evolved in order to perceive the lowest path, which is a Fibonacci spiral, five-fold uh, patterning. All these things are, are absolutely ingrained in us. So when artists can take that understanding from the sciences and be intentional with it, whether it's just sort of making it so their design is good, but also even like taking that idea and making that idea of the scientific idea part of the artwork itself, that takes things to the next level for a lot of artists. And uh, it's been my pleasure over the last 10 years to really engage with members of the arts community and be that, be that science bridge for them to help them understand what it is they're doing, whether it's in, you know, mostly working with glass artists, but uh, with others to help them understand what, what in the material can take them to the next level, what in the science can take them to the next level. So since you have that blend of experiences in science and art, I was just wondering, do you see like the golden ratio or Fibonacci sequence? Do you notice that in the art that you see every day or is it, I guess, it's more subconscious? I see it, I, I see it everywhere. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so just like looking at my, my Zoom screen right now, if I go a little bit off center, that's actually a, a better composed picture. It's more exciting to the eye because you sort of see the out here and then it kind of comes in and actually finds my eye. But you have content off here. You have a lack of content over here and it helps to draw the eye in to see it. But when you're right dead center, it's just it, it, it gets tiresome to always be kind of looking right in the center. So you really want to be there a little more casually off to one side. <laughs> so that, that, that's my that's my burden is that I see, I see I see art and the science. I see science in the art and I can't. Uh, Luckily, I can't decouple them for, for my benefit and for my employers. <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking back to art classes, and it's like the rule of thirds. That's that's what this reminded me of. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then from the artist perspective, I know this is different with an engineer. You kind of know when your project is done, when you've like solved the problem. Um, I remember hearing a story about how there was an artist and his friend. And so when the artist was like, like working on a piece, the friend was like, oh, that's beautiful. That's perfect. Like you just, you got to stop. But he just kept going, kept going. And every single time the friend was like, oh no, no, he, you made the right decision. You had to keep going. That was a really important piece. Is that something you see? like? How do you learn to know when to stop? Yeah, this, this gets back to a really important principle of materials engineering, process engineering uh, particularly, is you can't really understand when you've succeeded in process engineering until you've spent enough time failing. We talk about the process window, right? That, that this Here is the space where we can hit our specifications with the right amount of product at low cost. And we, we, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to try and hold the center, but we know we can veer, you know, in various, very invariable space in different directions and still come to where we're going to go. But the only way that you, and, and that makes for a more robust process, right? If you have some freedom to tune and some freedom for things to go out, out and still be good. And you actually, by doing that type of experiment where you let your machine run out of spec, and then how do you bring it back into specification and then look at all those all those possibilities along the way, you might actually find new phenomenon or new expressions that are going to actually be better than 
maybe not for the current product, but for some product down the road, or it becomes a next generation machine because you probed some variable and found that it was essential, but you only found it by failing at first. So when an artist is doing uh, doing the, their work, they are failing as they go as well. The important thing in, you know, in life generally right, is get back up. I've heard mastery in the arts, and I would say this for, for really for any discipline, that mastery in the arts isn't knowing how to do something, it's knowing how to fix it. You, you have to just have tools to be able to steer back into, into the realm, but at the same time, understanding more and more about what it is that you're doing. A lot of times with, like with an artwork, the goal isn't necessarily traditional beauty. It's more about uh, building tension. It's having some sort of a dialogue in the work that uh, forces the observer, the, the, the person interacting with the artwork to think about things <laughs> I've heard uh, it was uh, art defined as uh, so a hack. Somebody just you know just cranks stuff out. A hack caters to existing emotional needs. An artist seeks to create new emotional needs. So it's it's really putting putting something out there that's going to make you go, oh my gosh, wow, yeah, that is beautiful, but wow, right? Kind of David Lynch style. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, uh, but provocation, right? It's it's not necessarily just to soothe you about, you know, the, the beauty of the universe or the symmetry of a flower, but also then to then contemplate what does that mean uh, that it's symmetric? Am I? Does it matter? It's per- about, much more about provocation as a specification, which is not usually what you want in a machine. But in a sense, you 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 still have to go through that uh, that process of understanding. Yeah, it's interesting to see the parallels between what you were talking about, like the upper and lower specification limits, how there's that with the process engineering. And then that just reminded me of like when I was playing the violin in an orchestra, you're kind of like tuning your own instrument to work well with the rest of the the quartet, rest of the orchestra as well. Um, And even when you're playing your own music, you try and know if it doesn't sound right, then you can adjust. And it kind of ties back to what you were saying about fixing and adjusting. Yes. Yeah. We're always, we're always bounded in some way um, and understanding those boundary conditions and where, because that, that's where creativity comes in. Just sort of un, unbridled opportunity is sort of the worst, op, worst chance for invention. You're going to be much more inventive when you have restrictions in place uh, that you have to, it's, it's forcing you to you know, pinball off the sides of the problem and, and really explore parts of, of the variable space that you wouldn't necessarily go to if all you were thinking about was holding to a, a, holding to a center line or center spec. Yeah, that's great. Like connection between the two. Moving on, while there are many different types of art, most people usually think of paintings as the basically the greatest source of art. And there's a unique history revolving around the use of polymers as vehicles for pigments used in paintings. So first, could you explain what you mean by a vehicle for polymers and how they work, as well as how the selection of polymers evolved over time in our paintings and how that's changed how paintings look today? Yeah, paint. Yeah, like I said, painting is uh, sort of the go-to with art. Oh, Mona Lisa, right? Or painting, <laughs> or Botticelli or something mm-hmm. like that. And that everybody says, well, I can't do that, so I'm not an artist, which is very sad. But th- this idea that I have a visual field and I'm going to represent in a two-dimensional plane, what I'm seeing in a three-dimensional world. I mean, it goes back tens of thousands of years, right, to, to the, the early cave paintings. And there, the paintings 
either had no vehicle, no, no adhesive uh, binder uh, in them because the materials that were being used were sort of inherently, had, had some, some inherent quality of stickiness. So like uh, the powdered iron oxide that we call ochre, which is actually about the color of my jacket, that if you have finely ground up ochre, uh, it, uh, it actually sticks on your hands, it'll stick on the surface of, of a piece of rock. Same with carbon, you know, finely divided carbon, with carbon black soot or something. That's very small particles, nanoparticles really, that then easily smear and, and have some physical and chemical adhesion to whatever you're putting it into. So they didn't really need a vehicle. Although there's some things like using chalk where the uh, the painter would actually use saliva and there. So that was kind of one of maybe one of the first vehicles is you're then starting to have, use your body's natural proteins, uh, sugars, carbohydrates that are in your mouth then form a, an organic poly based polymer that helps to hold things in place uh, and for, for some period of time. That became more intentional, still sort of building upon the naturally sourced materials. I mean, always, materials, material science is ultimately about rocks that have been purified in different ways. So going, going back to just the purity or, or whatever you could dig up or whatever maybe you could crush uh, that had the right colors or the right qualities, and then beginning to mix that with different things to make it stick. And people were just noticed uh, over time that certain, especially with food products, right, whether it was like dairy products or eggs or fats or plant oils or plant materials, these different things with time changed, right? That they evolved. They, maybe they lost water. Maybe they they cooked. The proteins denatured in reaction with something else, and made some sort of an adhesive. So things like Milk-based paints, casein-based paints uh, were some an early polymer that was used, or or egg yolks, tempera, using egg egg whites and egg yolk as as the protein binder for the material, and then also giving it the binder, but also conveyed with the idea of a vehicle is is how it flows, like how does it flow under the brush or under your finger or however, to give you certain effects, getting it to be able to stand up so you have more uh, more relief in the in the picture. Uh, so all those things kind of contributed to the development of what how art looked because you were able to get it to adhere to different surfaces and give different types of vehicles when they dry will give you a different amount of reflection. So different types of reflection, more, more uh, specular or more matte type of reflections, which change the way that you perceive, perceive it in different environments. But the vehicle also gets in and, and sort of wraps itself around all these tiny particles and changes whether the particles themselves are able to scatter or if they're surrounded by something of a, a lower refractive index than they are, that then makes it so the colors become richer. You get less, you get more of a saturated color than you would uh, if it was just sort of adhered as, as a powder onto, onto a surface. So all these things then were coming into the 20th century uh, with intentional polymer chemistry. It, the, the game has always been to first mimic nature as you know, biomimetic. Here's my spit. Here's my milk. Here's my eggs. We know what that looks like. Give me something that does that because I like that, but I don't want it to yellow so fast. I don't want to be painting with my food, whatever. <laughs> or you go back to it. Some artists now, because you have those, those, those technical capabilities, sometimes it's, it's fun or evocative. It actually becomes part of the art to use uh, natural materials as part of what you're doing. Like if you're trying to reduce your, uh, your microplastics footprint, for example, uh, moving away from acrylics, because every time you clean your brush, you're sending a whoosh, of, uh, of acrylic acrylates into the, into the water system. So it's, th th there's opportunities there. Certainly it's, it's, it's one of the most fast, I, th I think a fascinating materials engineering story 
both from the point of view of the vehicles and the pigments of how humans have uh, leveraged those things to for 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 expression in different ways. So for artists, are they almost required to have a class in all the different materials? Because like you're saying, all these different things, because they have different material properties, give different perceptions, whether it's more saturated or more reflective or et cetera. So how is that normalized across art? And I guess, is it something that is beyond a lot of people and only the masters truly understand everything and how it works together as a material system? Going back to what I said about the materials engineering or engineering versus science, right? In the investigative way, it's important to know what sort of precision is available so you can then intentionally dial back your precision so that you have the, the accuracy that's only the accuracy that's necessary. From the point of view of, of an artist who maybe they can go to the, to the local art store and buy a tube of paint, they don't need to know really anything about the chemistry of what they're using because someone's already figured it out for them. So from the point of view of, of how they use their time, how they use their resources, they don't need to know that. Someone's done that for them, and they can then go deep dive into the, the, what they really want to be doing, which is experimenting with expression. So that's been a, a great gift to the arts in that they can then go farther because they don't have, they aren't sitting there with a, a mortar and pestle and, and jet, you know, sort of additively putting additional amounts of either yolk or white into their tempera as they're, as they're, as they're dealing with it. Some artists like to do that. They like that level of control. They, they want that precision to be a part of how they think about their material. And for some people, that gives them additional level of sensitivity to the material and, and uh, uh, the way that they might work the material. It's, it's going to, it's, you're going to see that, oh, this, they, I think they made their own paints here. This is that blue. You just can't buy that blue, right? So the, it, it, it's very much about this doing what's, absolute, doing what's necessary. And finding ways forward, whether you have the the empirical, the scientific knowledge, I should say, whether whether you have that deep dive into you know the, the lengths of your chains and whatnot, and the rheology and non-Newtonian viscosities or whatever, that isn't necessary to know that to that precision in order to be a painter, to be an artist. If you do know it, you might be able to do something that's going to be different and unique, but it's absolutely not necessary any more than it's necessary for. If a, if a material scientist buys a, a bottle of alumina from Alpha ASAR, they don't need to know how alpha, how they don't need to know the sourcing of the alpha aluminum oxide. Uh, it's just that it's going into my, it's going into my ceramic. That's all I need to know. I trust, I trust the upstream to have provided me with something that is uh, low risk and uh, well understood. Right now, I want to touch on glass blowing because that's been fascinating to me ever since I went to Italy, went to see the Murano glass blowing, I guess, shop in Venice. And it was evident that this process isn't something that was perfected, refined overnight, probably took years and years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. I don't even know. But it's clear there's a lot of materials engineering that comes into play. And so I was just wondering if you could explain what glass blowing is and maybe talk through some of the physics and chemistry concepts that come into play here. Yeah, so glass blowing is, is kind of the, it's kind of the sexiest way of making things out of glass, but glass has been formed by humans 
for actually for over a million years, some of the earliest uh, shaped artifacts actually weren't even made by humans. They were made by uh, Homo habilis, made from obsidian, natural occurring glass, because of what glass does, which is the particular type of conchoidal fracture, the way it breaks gives you the very sharp edges. Plus you get the, the look of, the, of that, that glassy look. So it was both aesthetic and useful, except for a million years or more. Humans only began to intentionally make glassy materials uh, probably about five or 6,000 years ago when they've mastered fire enough to get things hot enough to actually make molten silicates, first in sort of in small forms or as a coating on, on ceramics, but then figuring out finally to make the, the goo that you could then shape and that would stay shapeable for a while and would have these, this wonderful range of, of color expression. So that was like about 1500 BC, roughly, that the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamians and the Egyptians came up with a glass material that they were actually making things out of. But it wasn't, it was 1500 years until about a, a hot 50 or 100 BC that someone actually blew glass. Until then, it was always made uh, either by some sort of a casting process or by pressing it into a mold. And then often grinding out the center. If you actually wanted a hollow form, you either had to go and grind it out or you had to sort of dip, like, like dipping a, an ice cream into a, into the chocolate, you would make a, a film of, gla of the glass on the outside and then you'd dig out the insides. But at some point, like I said, about 100 BCE, somebody, and we don't know who, we don't know exactly where, we don't know why, someone looked at a bubble in glass and said, oh, it's, the vessel is already almost there. I just need to create the bubble within. How could I do that? Well, I can blow into a straw or into a tube, make a bubble of air, and there it would be. And that was really the beginning of glass manufacturing writ large. I mean, where you went from very few artifacts found in the world to hundreds of thousands of bottles throughout the Roman Empire and beyond that were made by this, this process. So once people saw it, there was, a, again, the materials engineering, there was a need, it felt, there was an opportunity, and there was a technology and a material, and it just, you know, it was the first big thing. And uh, people figured out pretty quickly how to use the material in that way to make bottles uh, or vessels or bowls or cups or uh, various things. And essentially what uh, a glass blower does today is almost identical to what the Romans were doing 2,000 years ago. It's, it's actually ast astonishing to look at a Roman bottle and see the delicacy of the decoration and the symmetry and the, the design of the form. They were doing what we, what we do now with much cruder uh, implement, implements, um, maybe not quite as, as much success, uh, but it certainly was all happening then. Uh, now your blowpipes are stainless steel instead of uh, instead of iron, or the uh, or and and the colors are far more vibrant, and and range of colors are available because of inorganic chemistry understanding. But overall, it's still glass blowing is is not that different. A Roman, if a Roman walked into a modern day hot shop, they would know what's going on. They would pick up a blowpipe, take a gather, and start working. I think the underlying principles are so are are so robust in terms of the coupling of viscosity and heat transfer and the materials reactions that uh, it once once you figured it out you don't really want to change it that much because uh, glass is a cliff it, it's you're either right or you're wrong and uh, people 
by failing, <laughs> learned what the, where those formulations were, uh, what was necessary for cooling it down slowly and kneeling the glass, what sort of changes you made to the composition and how that would change thermal expansion compatibility or durability in water, uh, fracture toughness, all those sorts of things that would be very much you know, the very underlying uh, materials engineering principles. On the topic of glass, and you briefly mentioned this before, but the idea of stained glass, how is that different? And what different processing steps does it have to get through to go from the glass that is clear or like one color to this beautiful finish where there's all these different types of colors? Yeah, so stained glass is interesting. It's sort of the opposite in some ways of the hot glass forming, right? Which is this sexy, dynamic, uh, athletic almost uh, activity <laughs> to something as sedate as sort of sitting at a table in your in your basement and slowly cracking the glass, breaking the glass into different in, into the right size pieces. Of course, at some point, all the stained glass, in order to get into thin sheets, someone had to work it. So it was melted. It was shaped by some method, either by hand or by machine. Sometimes the glass itself was colored with certain colors that are very vibrant, that are easy to make in the glass, things like cobalt blue, or, for example. But other, other colors in the glass are actually applied afterwards, so they're painted on. But there, now we're back to painting. And now we're thinking about, well, what sort of pigments would I use? What sort of vehicles would I use in order to apply things to the glass? And that becomes this whole other area of, of experimentation. Some stained glass painting is actually fired on. So you actually paint with enamels and then you bring it back up to four or 500 degrees C, let the enamels, let the vehicle burn out, let the enamels melt and, and fuse into the glass. Uh, but other times it, it, they're just, they're painted on and, uh, with, with some sort of a water durable or light durable adhesive as a part of the powder in order to get the, get the colors. But to, to me, one of the most fascinating things about watching a stained glass artist work is actually watching them break the glass, watching them cut it into, you know, these sinuous lines and then going in and, and just running the crack exactly where they want it to be. So that the way glass breaks, I mean, going, going back to Homo habilis, the way that glass breaks is as fantastic and as important and intentional from both the materials side and the art side as how you work it when it's when it's uh, molten. Uh, it's still something the glass does uniquely well that humans, whether arts, artists or engineers, have learned to leverage. You mentioned like the enamel and how that's incorporated into the system. So that just made me wonder, I guess, how much work is being put into art systems where there's multiple different types of materials that come into play? How is that figured out? Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> trial and error often. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be a theme here. <laughs> I'm paying attention, right? That's that's the heart of experimental design. It, it, a lot of it has just been, it's, it's sort of handed down that people know that, or people have come to know that uh, if, if these two things go together, then they'll stay together. And if we don't, then these will break apart. One of the things that I've tried to do in my, in the classes that I teach to artists particularly is teaching them mixed media, what they call mixed media approaches to hot glass. What's the science behind when metal and glass will stick together or metals and ceramics or enamels will stick together and how to, how to anticipate that. And also to how to anticipate when it's not going to work, but it's still going to look really cool when it breaks. And that that actually can be a new way of what, what an engineer would think of as a failure mode. Uh, the artist can actually see as a really cool way to make a certain texture or to make some sort of a comment about, say, the fragility of, of humans, the fragility of nature, by intentionally creating a particular kind of broken surface. 
because of incompatibility, because of chemical reactions gone crazy. There's always, there's, there's lots of interesting opportunities in those things. When we look at large pieces of stained glass, like in cathedrals in Europe that are like 20, 30 feet high and multiple feet wide, how long does that take? Is there any sort of time frame? Because I would assume you have to blow or you would have to make each piece and paint it and then have somehow assemble it either on-site or off-site. That seems like a ginormous task, even for the like the medieval ages as well. Do we have like any sort of time frame for that? Typically, again, the, this is another like with glass blowing. A lot of the methods that are used by contemporary stained glass artists are essentially the same as they were using. The materials might be a little more pure. They've got a little bit better in terms of you know the, the toughness of the tooling, but they're still using lead and copper and solders and and things to and and the glass is still the glass. So so it, it might take a stained glass artist to, to doing a large commission, it might take several years of working on it uh, or a team with a team of artists working on it uh, over a period of time. You might have other, because some, some operations you need to, to set it and let it dry, right? Then you come back to it, but you might, so you might have something else going on, but it takes, it, it's a, it's a laborious and intense process that can go on for a very long time. There's a, an art center out of, uh, in Los Angeles called Judson Studios that has been making stained glass art in the United States for over a hundred years, but they've recently begun to incorporate some more modern tools so that they can make larger pieces of glass that have imagery on them and then figuring out how to incorporate that. That's been kind of one of the big step forward for glass art in the last, or for for stained glass art in, in centuries, I would say. That's fascinating. So now I want to dive into when and why medals are selected to send a message through art. So in the context of maybe, let's say, the Statue of Liberty with copper or the charging bull on Wall Street, which is a bronze statue, how are these or what does the processing look like for these pieces of art and what makes medals the apt choice in these types of situations? Yeah, part of it is that the, there's a scientific and engineering side to it, and there's also an aesthetic, historical, cultural side to it. Talking a little bit about the, the latter first. That so we talk about the ages of humanity in terms of the metal, or in terms of the metals that were dominant, right? From the the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, to the Steel Age. So there were significant periods of human history where different types of metal were the dominant metal that was being made, whether it was into weapons or artwork or household utensils, because that was what was available. That's what people had learned how to, how to smelt and forge and, and, and shape and decorate. And so we, part of it is that we carry a history of things like copper and bronze or, or cast iron and things from historically. And we continue culturally to have a certain association of value or of strength or grandeur or something from those particular materials. And that becomes, again, part of this aesthetic specification that has to be hit. But then there's also the, the more engineering thinking about it of how is, is it going to be durable? Is it going to be strong? Is it going to actually be workable into the shapes that we want? So processing and also uh, how, does it, how does it live in, in, in its environment uh, in terms of how, to, how does it serve its purpose and for how long? And there you get into, uh, with, with things like metals, you, you have to then begin to evaluate how they're going to change when they're actually, actually put into their service environment. And so this gets into the issue of, of oxidation, corrosion, or the artists call patination or p- building up of a patina. 
that where the the you're not actually going to see the metal uh, and because I mean on Earth metal doesn't happen very often. It's a very uh, we, we've got a lot of oxygen around and most metals like to react with oxygen and, and other things. So it, you, by anticipating how these how the material system is going to evolve in service and doing with intentional intentionality, then you can build that into the work. So with like the Statue of Liberty being made out of copper, the goal wasn't to have a copper colored Statue of Liberty because they knew that it was going to be out in New York Harbor. So it was going to, it was going to oxidize. And so the color that the, sort of the greenish blue that uh, azure color is because of the mix, mix of different copper oxides and carbonates and things that now make up the patina of the Statue of Liberty that actually help protect the surface once you have an intact patina. It's not the same as say aluminum passivating or aluminum oxide passivating alumina or chrome oxide on chrome, but it is still, uh, it, it helps slow things, can slow things down. Similarly, bronze with uh, the, the, the bull on Wall Street, uh, the bronze look of bronze is actually the look of a, an intentionally rusted, well, it, rust is usually uh, held back for specifically for iron alloys, but specifically oxidized and treated so that it has that, that dark umber uh, appearance that, is, uh, that denotes sort of strength and durability. Yeah, I, I never really knew. I knew that it was a copper color when it came to America, the Statue of Liberty was, but I didn't know that France intentionally made it so that it would oxidize over time and change colors. Uh, for whatever reason, I just thought it was a mistake. <laughs> Didn't they know it was going to rust? <laughs> like, no, they, they knew where it was going. It wasn't the first thing made people, I mean, people have been making stuff out of copper for 4,000 years. So. Yeah, I guess to be fair, I didn't really think about it that much, uh, about the logistics of uh, they sent this like 60 foot tower and like, nope, it's going to stay like this forever. <laughs> but another interesting idea is that we talked about it was in the harbor. So they knew the environment, they knew how it was going to react over time. And they thought about that throughout their planning. And so another thing that you talked about was having art in space, which is now a new frontier of where we can put things and the form can now completely change because of like the lack of gravity, for example. And the idea that we can tell a story of humans as an extraplanetary civilization. Could you talk about this idea further and kind of how do we do this in a, a logistical manner? Because it seems very hard to get anything up in this space right now. Well, the good news is that it's, it's getting easier. I think in the last, uh, well, last five years, really, and really it's, it's, it's accelerating the, the, the commercial building, building in space with rockets and soon uh, space stations. NASA just announced a, a grant of funding for three companies that are going to be building uh, commercial space, space stations for whatever needs to be done after the ISS is uh, decommissioned. So it, it's happening. And people are thinking about it. People are thinking about the, that cultural side of it, in, in addition to how does it enable you know, manufacturing of different things? Because if you don't have gravity, you don't, for example, you don't have buoyancy. And so if you have a temperature variation in a molten system uh, and you don't have buoyancy, then you don't have the sort of cells and mixing, and which can lead to phase separation and all sorts of things that can mess up. But if you, if you, know, if you do it right, you can actually then make things that are actually sensitive to those situations and, and fabricate materials that are impossible to make on Earth because you're making them in zero gravity. And if that has enough of a, of a cost advantage, then you know, people will want it. From the art side, we're just beginning to 
kind of understand what's going to bring value, right? It's still going to cost a lot of money. So what are people willing to pay for in the early years of, of the human humans off planet? And what is going to be, again, to this aesthetic spec, what is going to be evocative, right? What's going to really uniquely communicate about the human condition that is worth making in these extraordinary environments, currently extraordinary. It's it's a whole other type of, of pioneering, right? In the same way that there are material scientists and engineers who are working on these high value optical materials or uh, electronic materials or biochemical materials that can only be made in low gravity, beginning to think about both sort of repurposing existing methods. So how do how are paint vehicles going to change, right? Are you but are you actually is it going to be important to be painting on a flat surface in space? Or because you, instead of, I mean, we have a plane on a wall and we're standing in gravity. And so we then address that, that surface in front of us. What if you could address all the surfaces and you're sort of floating around your canvas in space and uh, it becomes a different exercise, right? Now suddenly painting in the round or in the sphere is, it becomes a, a more, more feasible. You're not going to, you're not sitting there having to spin it around. You just sort of move around it. And what sort of looks, what kind of gestures are, are more appropriate for that type of way of working? I think the process has sort of started with the computer, digital painting, like painting on your computer and the beginning of people painting and sculpting in, with uh, 3D goggles on. So, so you're actually creating three-dimensional forms with your hands that then are remembered by the computer so you can make a virtual sculpture of forms that you couldn't make if you were trying to squish it into a piece of clay or carve it into a piece of wax or stone. And then you can 3D print that if you want to, or it can always live as a, as, as a virtual piece of sculpture. So extending that ability of the human mind to come up with metaphor, right? To, to think about, well, this is, this is the idea that I've got. Here's a new medium. Here's a new, new toy of way to, to explore that idea. People will figure it out. I have no idea what space art is going to look like, but I cannot wait to see it. I think it's going to be very exciting. Yeah, it just ties back to that same theme of trial and error. That That's what it'll take to figure this out, quote unquote. Yeah, and it's going to take materials engineers and scientists to help it out, to, to make it happen efficiently. But also it has to happen safely. And so people who are working on, uh, you know, aerospace engineers working on user interface design and, and safety protocols for currently for space stations and then ultimately for say uh, moon bases and Mars bases, there's going to be very particular things that you cannot do, right? You're not going to be blowing glass on a space station gathering from a hot furnace. <laughs> You're not going to have a torch for probably on a space station for a very long time for good reason. So what, what does glass blowing on a space station look like? What are you going to be making? Why are you going to be making it there? All these great critical questions of what justifies the risk for the expression that's ultimately made. As I said, it's very exciting to think about how humans are going to negotiate that and what's going to be created. Yeah, all questions that I don't have the answer to, but I also look forward to hearing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, we talked about uh, Vanta Black before we briefly mentioned it, but it's a topic I want to discuss because it utilizes advanced materials uh, like nanotubes to take color to a whole new level. And I read online that it, it absorbs 99.965% of visible light to create one of the, if not the darkest pigment. And so on a high level, can you just explain the material science that 
uh, like make up this pigment and what this can lead to with the future of art? It, it's it's really an interesting opportunity because uh, the, it's it's this intersection between some of the newest type of materials uh, have been developed. That is the carbon nanotube, or which you know, based on the fullerene structure of like buckyballs that wasn't even that was only discovered, in, I guess, in the late eighties, and has led then to this uh, a completely new appearance that humans had never people had imagined. Well, they'd imagined it on like on cartoons where you have like the hole that nobody can tell that it's not a hole; it's just a piece of plastic on the on the. Then and then, but the, somehow the coyote falls in. <laughs> it's that level of blackness when you see it, it. It's like you cannot believe your eyes. Your your evolution will look at that and think that it has to be. There can't be anything there. It, it's negative. It, it's it's a, it, it's not that it's just a black surface. It's like there's nothing there. And so that level of of sort of this dysphoria that it induces, you know, back to that idea that art, art, the the duty of art is to create new emotional needs. That you know, presenting the human mind with that with that paradox is uh, is startling and and makes you sort of step back and and think about what you're seeing and think about everything that you see then in a new way. So the 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 manufacture of the uh, nanotubes is done by. Uh, you know, controlled pyrolysis in very, very specific atmospheres and very specific type of flame that you generate the carbons and then the carbons wrap around themselves into this uh, C60 or CN structure uh, going out in all directions. But so you end up with carbon, which is this uh, semiconducting material that then absorbs the light, absorbs all the photons that come into it. And when they're relatively well aligned, the light just goes in, bounces and never can get back out, right? It's not like bouncing off a surface, it actually sort of bounces in and then plays around in this forest of nanotubes and gets lost. And so it's very rare for anything to find its way out, sort of the black hole of, of uh, quantum mechanics. And so that that type of, of surface that, that, or this can be created by painting these onto the onto a surface, these vertically aligned nanotubes, then creates this, this optical effect that's extraordinary. Yeah, it's just mind blowing, I guess, thinking about that. I guess it just reminds me of optical illusions in a point and maybe seeing how that could play a factor into the future of art and just playing with our eyes and playing with our mind too. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that I think, well, we're seeing a lot of that, I think, with as artists began to explore three dimensional uh, virtual reality type of scenarios, right? There, there, there's a trick that's being done there that is based in the materials that it's built around, but also on the computing power to create simulations of things that would be uh, physically impossible to make. But by understanding the, the neurology of, of, of human vision and vision perception and, and oral perception as well, you can create these new environments in different ways. So it's, it's, it's kind of beyond, we, we've talked mostly about sort of the made world, right, of, of art as object but art as performance and art as experience is also going to have a revolution that the, uh, I think the Vanta Black is a nice sort of bridge for that, creating uh, these new new types of human experiences, whether it's in music, in performance, in visual uh, sensation, tactile. I mean, people beginning to have tactile so that you can actually stimulate other parts of the body, simulated chemistry so you can have olfactory. I mean, all, all these different ways of immersing the human are communicating ideas into the human receptive systems, uh, materials will be there. 
uh, enabling it, whether either directly or indirectly. Yeah, I just like to think of it almost like 3D printing, where we have additive and subtractive. And I feel like in art, we focus on so much of the additive, adding colors, mixing colors. But now with Vantablack, we kind of have the option to take away. And so I can only imagine what artists can figure out how to use this in an intriguing way where they make some painting and they start taking away parts by just painting over it with Vantablack and just seeing how that can create new illusions. Um, but overall, today we uncover just how deep the intersection between MSc and art really is uh, and how all material classes can be incorporated in the space. I know that I've personally been lacking in my art history as I thought that France made a mistake with the Statue of Liberty. So <laughs> we definitely could use some more art history. But considering everything we discussed today, what advice would you give to materials engineers who are interested in getting into this art field and learning more about it or even potentially, like you said, creating the intersection between the two? Take an art history class. <laughs> it's a little late for me, but uh, I'll definitely tell that to everybody else. No, it's never, never too late to learn. Believe me. I think that I mean, there's sort of the formal and the informal. I would guess. I would say. I mean, certainly, if like for a, for a freshman who might be watching this and or getting ready to go to college, if, if it works for your for your budget and your needs to find an institution that values uh, a liberal arts education alongside of an engineering and sciences education to the extent that's possible, or in a location that even if it's not happening on campus, you can uh, be involved in the art scene wherever it is that you're going. If you can, uh, you'll have electives along the way. Think about electives that aren't just sort of the, the throwaway, well, I've got to take an English class, so I'll just take English Lit, you know, for 20th century English Lit. Think about it a little bit. Maybe talk, go, go talk to the professors and say, hey, I'm a material scientist. I'm interested in uh, the broader use of materials and culture, are there any classes that I could take? Maybe they're 300 level, maybe the 400 level. That would be uh, maybe a, a chance to explore that. You might even be, find yourself in a really cool uh, independent study because the, the, the professors could be could be interested in enabling that sort of thing. So get out there and, and you, you kind of have to fight for it in some places and or, or dig it up. And, and I encourage to do that as part of like your education and then dovetailing that where you can into your into your uh, science and engineering education. But the other thing is on your own, whether you think think of yourself as an artist or as a musician or a performer, keep those parts of yourself alive. Nurture them while you are also nurturing your science nerd and uh, look for opportunities to get to for those crossover points. Because down the road, what's going to be valued by your employer is very, it's very likely going to be more than just whether or not, you know, you can, you can calculate a band structure. They're going to want to know that you're creative. They're going to want to know that you're social, social human who can uh, be a good part of a team and, and a decent human being. And uh, the arts provide you with an opportunity for that type of development as well. So even if it's not about, yeah, the, the, the patina on the, on, the, on the Statue of Liberty, at the very least, it's about just being a whole person in all the ways that people are people. Yeah, you're unlocking new ways to think. And that's what employers seek is that creativity when you're problem solving. So I, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I just wanted to thank you, Jane, for coming on to the show today. It was a pleasure having you. My pleasure, guys. This is great. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. 
David and I also created a career development guide for MSCs, which you can download for free using the link in the show notes below. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. Links will be provided in the show notes as well. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, go change the world.